This episode is for mature audiences. It discusses suicide, suicidal thoughts, and suicidal ideation, which some people might find disturbing or triggering. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please contact your physician, go to your local ER, or call the Suicide Prevention Hotline in your country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove. I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur, author, artist, mother, and certified recovery coach. I'm your co-host, Arthur Mogilevsky, entrepreneur, girl dad, animal activist, and owner of AM Healthcare, a premier substance abuse and mental health treatment program. With the collective experience of 21 years working in the mental health field, we are excited to bring to you a safe and fun place to talk all things mental health. We will be interviewing experts, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and professionals in the entertainment industry to better educate, inform, and inspire our community to have positive mental wealth. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove, and my usual partner in crime, Arthur, was not able to be here today, but I am accompanied by his gorgeous wife, Anna Mogilevsky. I can pronounce her last name right. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, Anna is the owner of Kesem Therapeutic Services, former attorney representing children in the foster care system, vegan animal rights activist, and mom and wife. On the show today, we have Dr. Mark Goulston. Dr. Mark Goulston is a former UCLA professor of psychiatry, former FBI hostage negotiation trainer, and Marshall Goldsmith MG100 executive coach. He is the author or co-author of nine books translated into 42 languages, including Just Listen, which became the top book on listening in the world. He hosts the My Wake Up Call podcast, co-hosts Doable by You, radio show for UK Health Radio, is a co-founder of 92nd Mentor on LinkedIn, is a founding member of the Newsweek Executive Forum, is the inventor of surgical empathy, which he used to prevent suicide in all his patients, and is an executive producer of What I Wish My Parents Knew. Welcome to the show, Dr. Goulston. That's a lot to live up to. It is a lot to live up to. <laughs> you are someone that I've interviewed before on podcast my podcast with my family. And to this day, you are one of the most influential people I've ever spoken with uh, because of what you do, how you do it, your approach, and specifically the subject today, which is suicide. And I think we were talking about it previously to the show starting. It's a really heavy subject. And I speak very passionately and sometimes that passion comes across as excitement, but I'm, I'm very excited to have an open dialogue around the subject of suicide because it's really rampant right now. And the amount of people that are attempting suicide, um, you know, I'll just read a little bit of stats here that in 2020, the CDC reported that 12.2 million adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million adults made a plan, and 1.2 million adults attempted suicide. 45,975 people in, 20, in 2020 committed suicide. And I get emotional because I know people that have committed suicide. I know people that have attempted suicide. I struggled with suicide ideations when I was 11 years old. I attempted twice something I don't openly talk about, but something I want to openly talk about because it's real. And here it is. And we have Anna here to talk about it. And Anna has such 
incredible experience working with children in the foster care system. And I think a lot of children who experience such severe trauma like that, would you say end up moving towards suicide attempts? I mean, I'm asking both of you. Like, yes. Why does someone choose to end their life? I'd like to start there. You know, it's interesting. I uh, After Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died by suicide, I wrote a, a blog on Medium. It's still there. Why people kill themselves, it's not depression. So it got 400,000 views in, in, because of the title. And I said, uh, depression, loss of a job, loss of a relationship, all those things can contribute to it. But there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who have that, who who don't kill themselves. And in being someone who was immersed in studying it, but also being a suicide prevention specialist, one of the things that I discovered, and tell me how this, how this feels for either of you, is that at the end of their rope, people feel despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S dash P-A-I-R, they feel un paired, mm. hopeless without a future, powerless without the ability to help themselves, helpless, useless, worthless, meaningless, purposeless. And when they all line up like some slot machine, you know, in the dark night of the soul, pointless to go on. And what happens is they pair with death to take the pain away. And people who have been suicidal more than a few times, what they don't tell you is they tuck it in their back pocket as if worse comes to worse, I can always check out. And so what I discovered, you know, a long time ago, uh, one of my mentors was a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. And if you look up Ed Schneidman, he was a pioneer in suicide prevention at UCLA. So he would refer me still suicidal patients who had to be discharged from the hospital because they, you couldn't stay there forever. And these were people that the residents didn't necessarily want to see as outpatients, and he'd refer them to me. And something fortunate happened to me at the end of my training there. There was a fellowship I was going to go into, and it got canceled. So I figured, eh, I'll just see if any, I'll just open up a practice, see if anyone sends me people. And when I was with suicidal people, what I experienced is when I'd listen into people's eyes, which I learned to do, they would be screaming at me with their eyes, mm. you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. So I had the choice to hide behind the boxes. And because I wasn't working in an institution, I didn't have to check boxes. I didn't have to follow a protocol. Uh, and so I just went where their eyes took me. And their eyes took me into the dark night of the soul. And there was one uh, story that most people find a little bit uh, riveting, but understandable. There was a woman that I was seeing, we'll call her Nancy, and she'd made three suicide attempts before I started seeing her. And she'd been in the hospital multiple times over multiple years. And way back then, you could be in the hospital for four weeks, six weeks. It's not like it is now. And I was seeing her, and I didn't think I was making any progress. She never made eye contact with me. 
but she'd show up for the sessions. And I was seeing her six months, and I didn't think I was helping her. And she wasn't catatonic. But if you're me and I'm Nancy, this is what she'd look like. No expressions. Yeah, no expressions. And so back then I used to moonlight at a hospital, which meant I covered for psychiatrists, you know, uh, and it was a metropolitan state hospital in Norwalk, California. And sometimes you don't sleep for 24 hours. You know, you're up, you're, you're admitting people to the hospital, you're uh, going to the wards to write orders. And if you've ever been up for 24 hours or 30 hours, you know, your, your, your body plays tricks on you. So there I am. Uh, it's a Monday, and I haven't slept, and there's Nancy in my office. And she's looking not at me, but away. And as I was looking at her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I looked out of the room, and it's just black and white. And then it got very cold, and I thought, oh, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. And she's not looking at me. So I'm a, I'm a medical doctor, and I have some training in neurology, so I do a neurologic exam on myself. I'm tapping my elbows like this and looking to see if I'm seeing double vision, and she's like this. And I thought, oh, I'm all here. I'm not having a stroke or a seizure. And then I had the... Oh, then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her feelings. So because I was sleep deprived, right. I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't say. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. Wow. And I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, did I just think that or did I say that? And I thought, I think I just gave her permission. I remember saying, don't write that in the record. <laughs> As an attorney, this is concerning. I know. Right? right? How did you feel after you said that? Uh, well, it's not, it's, it's not finished because she looked at me for the first time. Whoa. And when she looked at me, this is a person who never made eye contact. She just grabbed onto my eyes like I'm grabbing onto your eyes and I'm grabbing onto your eyes. I can grab onto your eyes and I can take them wherever I want. And she grabbed onto my eyes like for life. She heard you for the first time. And I said, what are you thinking? And I thought she was going to say, thank you, I'm overdue. But this is what she said is, holding onto my eyes, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. Wow. And then, ah, so and, emotional. And then she smiled. And then I grabbed onto her eyes with my eyes because I didn't want to lose this contact. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you treatments that you've tried, we've tried, that haven't worked out, unless you ask me to. Would that be Okay. And she nodded, we keep talking. And then I leaned into her eyes, like I'm leaning into yours. And I said, what I'm gonna do instead is I'm gonna find you wherever you are and keep you company there. That's so important, company. Because I don't want you to be alone there. And then her eyes teared up. And that was the birth of something I call surgical empathy. 
because, and I call it surgical empathy because what I realized is when you've been traumatized in your childhood, you form a psychological adhesion to whatever you use to cope. And it's not an attachment. It's an adhesion. It's like after surgery, sometimes your organs stick together and you have to go in and cut the, cut the, uh, the adhesions. And what I realized is that people have been traumatized. They form these adhesions to the way to survive. Uh, and often what happens, by the way, uh, there's a famous book called The Body Keeps the Score. My favorite book. Because what happens is when you're traumatized, the pain goes into one of your organs. And when you get older, that organ is often the one when you get stressed out. So it's your, you know, your chest, your head. And when you get stressed out, uh, it can often, it, it just goes back there. And, and your organ holds on to it because the outside world doesn't know how to deal with it. They either tell you, oh, it'll be okay, or you're just going through something, and which just makes you feel patronized and worse. So it goes into your organs, and, you, and, you, it, you, and what happens is as you get older, when you feel stressed, and it goes into your organs, it feels like you want to explode. And, and let me share another anecdote if I can. So I'm at UCLA, and UCLA way back then was one of the top centers for eating disorders. Yes. And they would, you know, and, and it was rough. I mean, if you had anorexia, they'd tube feed you rather than let you die. So um, when I was in training, they teach you all kinds of methods. It's not just medication. And they teach you something called guided imagery, visualization, whatever. And this young woman comes in, it's a Saturday evening, and I'm on call in the emergency room. And, uh, and it's clear, uh, she must, she's all skin and bones. And it's clear that we need to admit her. So I call upstairs and I say, get a bed ready. And, uh, uh, and I could have gone back to the waiting room, had the nurses take care of her, but I, but I thought something else, I, I just thought I, I needed to do something. And so uh, I said, you know, can we try something? Uh, and it might make you feel better. If it makes you feel nervous, you can stop it. Uh, but is that okay? And I, I guess I have a way of developing rapport with people. I, I mean, I don't know what it is, but people, you know, I guess they feel safe with me. Yes, I feel like I'm in hypnotherapy session right now. I feel mm -hmm. very calm listening to your voice. You have very calm vibrations about you. Oh, I thought I just spoke nasal. But, uh, <laughs> so, so let me just share this anecdote. So she's there. She's skin and bones. And I said, are you right-handed or left-handed? She said, right-handed. I said, I'd like you to put your feet up on the chair in front of you. Get relaxed. I want you to close your eyes. And... Uh, and and they're going to find it all about your family history and your parents and all that stuff. So, you know, uh, uh, and, but something inside me said to try it, just like something inside me said to try it with Nancy. And she's right-handed. And I said, I want you to put your left hand over your stomach. 
And I want you to breathe in slowly. And I want you to imagine that the left hand is the mommy you always wanted. And we're not here to bash the mommy you had, uh, but it's the mommy you always wanted. We all want that. And I want you to breathe in with your left hand over your stomach and keep repeating that your mom is saying to you, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And just breathe in and feel that. And then we did that for a while. And then I said, now I'd like you to take your right hand and put it over your left hand. And that's the hand of the daddy you always wanted. And the daddy your family always wanted. And your daddy's hand is over your mommy's hand, which is over your stomach, and you're feeling warmth. And your daddy is saying to your mommy and you, uh, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, and we're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. So I want you to breathe in, go back and forth, feel your left hand. And again, the left hand is holding where the trauma is. You know, so, so the trauma has a way to release mm. because it, it, it feels the warmth of the mom and the strength of the dad. And we just did this. And then I get a message that the bed is ready and they're coming down for her. So I, I said, uh, and remember, she's anorectic. Uh, and I said, um, I'm going to count from one to ten. And when we get to eight, you're going to start flicking your eyes open. And when you get to ten, you're going to just open them and you're going to look around. And you can remember everything or you can remember nothing. It doesn't matter. There's no way to fail this. Uh, what you might remember, though, is some of the feelings of I'm here and I'm not going anywhere and we're going to get through this. So keep breathing slowly. And I counted slowly to 10, and at 8 she starts flickering her eyes, and at 10 she opens them, and then she's just kind of wide awake. I mean, she's been, I guess, hypnotized. And uh, the people come down uh, to take her to the bed, and, and she looks at me, and I say, you're going to get through this. And she looks at me, and she says, is the cafeteria open? I'm starved. Wow. You got the result of something that she didn't do probably for years, and you got that through this one session with her. What you did with that client was you're connecting with her. You're, you're connecting with her. You're, you're practicing what you teach, which is surgical empathy, correct? And I know that this is the thing that you use to connect with your clients who struggle with suicide. And I want to kind of pivot a little bit to two documentaries. Um, you know, as you were talking earlier, I got so emotional. I feel very emotional right now. And I'll just allow myself to be emotional and not try and be a robot. I'm very human. This is a subject that touches very close to my heart and to a lot of people and that I know that have ended their lives and, uh, kids, uh, teenagers, uh, clients I've worked with have found their parents with nooses around their neck, have found their parents OD'd 
overdosed. Uh, and I think what this is bringing attention to is what we can start doing for our fellow humans to make sure that that's not the option that they choose for themselves. And with Tell My Story, with, um, you know, things I wish my parents knew, right? That's a documentary that you did with Jason Reed. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Jason Reed, with those documentaries? So I guess Jason reached out to me because his son, Ryan, uh, uh, died by suicide five years ago. He was 14 years old. And, um, and Jason was on holiday with his wife celebrating how great their life was. And they got a text message from Ryan that said, uh, don't blame yourself. I'm sorry. Goodbye. And Jason started screaming and he called home and his mother-in-law was there and he said, go find Ryan. And she walked, she ran around the house and he'd hung himself in the attic. And, um, and he left and it was, you have to go tell my story was one of the notes that Ryan left. And so Jason did a documentary called tell my story, put in over a couple hundred thousand and he interviewed uh, families, teenagers who had been suicidal and experts. And I was one of the experts. So that's how I met him. And we really connected. And, um, and But one of the things that he noticed, and that's available on Amazon Prime, is he noticed that the most riveting part of it was when the teens talked about their low points. So his next film is called What I Wish My Parents Knew because it's what he wished he had known, but he didn't get the chance with Ryan. And he interviews, I believe, 10 teens, no frills, green screen behind them. Tell me about your low point. And it's not going to go on Netflix. It's not going to go on YouTube. Uh, I'm, I'm an executive producer because I want to protect it from the haters coming in. And the haters will find these people and say, why don't you kill yourself? It's going to go to 500 high schools, we hope, this year for parents to see. But what I'm excited about is I have been looking for a vehicle that can change the way parents and teenagers communicate. So what happens when we show the video, because we're doing presentations, before we show the video, I orient the people watching it. And I say, if you're a parent of a teen, I want you to write down these five words. Complain, blame, excuses, threats, moody. Can you say that one more time? Complain, blame, excuses, threats, moody, which is mostly what teenagers are. And that triggers parents to be scared, worried, frustrated. It doesn't trigger them to be empathic because it creates anxiety in the parents. We'll, we'll, we'll do something. Maybe you should see someone. And so what happens is the children don't open up to their parents because they don't think their parents can be empathic. And the teens don't realize that what they're doing is they're triggering their parents to be unempathic. So when we present this to parents, I say, when you watch these teenagers about their low points, they are not complaining, blaming, making excuses or threats or moody. They're just raw, vulnerable, and calm. Uh, and what happens is when parents see it, they go home, they're crying, and their kids 
aren't used to seeing their parents cry. What's the matter, Mom? What's the matter, Dad? They just realize how much I love you. And so it can change the conversation, and I'm really excited about it. Something else I'm excited about, uh, I'm a connector. <laughs> and, uh, and I've connected with all the dots that will solve the teen mental health crisis. Thank God. So it's a real crisis. Yeah, the, the key is, so I, I've connected with the founders. So for instance, I connected with the, I think the executive director of Vibrant Emotional Health. They rolled out 988 nationally. I connected with uh, uh, someone I actually mentored. He has a site called Talking to Teens, and they have 220 podcasts about how do you talk to your teen. And it's with parents, it's with experts. I've connected with McKinsey Health and Wellness because they may be interested in this too. I've connected with the founder of something called the Family Office Exchange. These are the 380 wealthiest families in the world. And those families often have kids who have mental health issues. Um, I've connected with a company called June.com, J-O-O-N, and they provide mental health services through telehealth uh, to 13 to 24-year-olds, and they're approved by insurance in California, Oregon, Washington, Texas, and Pennsylvania. And, uh, and then there's a couple other sites, but collectively, uh, if we could coordinate them, they could solve the crisis. And the opening of it is Jason's film, What I Wish My Parents Knew, because it, when you watch it, it's mesmerizing. It is. You know, and, and I'll share a personal experience because I think, you know, most of us shrinks have a backstory. And mine is I, I, I dropped out of medical school twice and I finished. And I had untreated depression. And there was a moment where I had to tell my father, who could be very critical, and uh, people were afraid of him in the company he worked at because he was the one who fired people. Uh, and I told him I was um, leaving medical school. And he said, uh, what'd you do, flunk out like your brothers? Because I had brothers who had you know, flunked out of undergraduate school, and then, you know, then, they, then they went back and whatever. And I said, no, I'm passing everything. He said, well, I don't get this. If you're passing everything, why are you dropping out? Well, because you know, I'm reading the books and I'm not holding on to it. Yeah, but I don't get it. And he, and he could be a real tough person. And he, I mean, he, he was fair, but he was tough. You know, he was the tough guy at the his company. He was a fixer, it sounds like. Yeah, he was the hitman. <laughs> he was the fixer plus hitman. You know, because the CEO didn't want to fire people. You know, he wanted to be liked. And so imagine this. Uh, he, I'm, I'm saying things, and I'm sort of making excuses. And it's not working. And then there's a point at which he just keeps talking over me. And I look down. And I'm thinking, if I go back, something bad's going to happen. I, I didn't think the S word, but if I go back, something bad's going to happen. So he's, you know, at me. I'm, you know, I'm not responding. And he reaches a point where he says, so we're agreed 
you're gonna you'll go back and you're gonna get tutors, you're passing things, and you know, and that's what's gonna happen. He's the tough guy. He's yeah. trying to tell you this is the best solution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not listening to your feelings at that moment. Yeah. And so it's interesting. I mean, I've trained hostage negotiators. I've spoken in Moscow. I mean, you know, I, you know, I've done some stuff, but this was the most powerful moment of my entire life. Why do you feel it was the most powerful? Well, because I was taking a chance, and I looked up at him. He said, so we're agreed. You're going to go back. And I didn't know about looking into people's eyes, but I looked into his eyes. And I was taking a chance. And I said, you just don't understand. I'm afraid. And I just stared at him. At that moment, is that how you felt? Or is that a technique that you wanted to try? No, no. This, this was, you know, I hadn't trained. I hadn't, you know, I was dropping out of medical school. It was, it was what these teenagers in that film show you is that I wasn't complaining, I wasn't making excuses, I wasn't doing anything. I was just being raw, open, and I was taking a chance because underneath it all, I felt he loved this kid. For parents out there who are concerned of their kids who aren't talking to them, go to their rooms, turn on their iPads, don't have the language of vulnerability because maybe they weren't brought up on it because really it's only happening in the last five or 10 years where this language is now becoming available and normal. But I feel like it's very normal in Los Angeles versus <laughs> around well, the country. Well, here are the tactics because yeah. whenever I do interviews, you know, you know, my stories are pretty decent, I guess. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, but listeners say, okay, you got us. You had us at hello and it got better. Uh, you know, we're not shrinks. We're not psychologists. We're worried parents. What do we do? Right. So as part of the presentation with Jason, uh, I always share this. I say, here is the script you can use with your child. You can modify it a little bit. And do it when you're doing something with them, an activity. Do not start a heart-to-heart -heart talk, face-to-face. -face. Teenagers hate that. So if they do a heart-to-heart -heart talk, be open to it. But don't you initiate it. They can't. It's nails on a chalkboard. So this is what it looks like while you're driving or you're doing something. You say, honey, what? A lot of parents are worried about their kids. You know, we read in the newspapers. We read about fentanyl. We read about the epidemic and whatever. And I'm one of those parents. Can I just run some things by you? You're asking for permission. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm one of those. And, you know, and it'll be okay, but I could, could, could I just run some things by you? And what if the kid's like, no, dad, I don't want to talk about it? Um, Ew, dad, that's weird. Uh, it is really weird. And you know what's weird? We should have talked about it a long time ago. That's what I call, see, when you show emotion like I'm showing, you have skin in the game. I well, love that. I love that you shared that. Yeah. And when I, by the way, when I said, what I said to my father, he clenched his fists and he looked down 
And he said, do what you need to do and we'll, uh, wow. we'll, tr- we'll try and help you. So he got emotional. But you know, it's interesting because now that you tell me this is what you should tell your child, my dad, for example, he would never have a discussion with me like this. You know, in the culture that I grew up in, in Belarus, USSR, we don't talk about emotions. Mm-hmm. And it goes on for generations and generations and generations. Well, well, there's a saying. Maybe it comes from the Bible. I'm not sure. It's where there's a will, there's a way. It's totally backwards. Where there is a way that's doable by regular people, they will find the will to do it. So let me finish the four prompts. So you're there, and yeah, the kid pushes back. This is really weird. But again, if you don't want to imagine getting that call from the emergency room, you know, we're sorry. You know, we're sorry. So you want that to fuel you. And so your kid pushes back. Uh, and you say, uh, as I said, um, I know it's weird. And you know, I need to have the talk with you. I need to have this talk with you, maybe more than you need to listen and want to listen. But do you follow me when you show real skin in the game? And again, of course this is abnormal, but the point is, you know, I'm a suicide specialist. Yes. One of your kids kills themselves, your life is over. Mm, I, I yes. mean, you, you think about it every day of your life. So the parent needs to be willing to be vulnerable with their kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially men, because something that was news to me was that the suicide rates in men are much higher than women. So dads, husbands, this is something they have to really face within themselves. Well, well, well part of it is... Men don't know how to use words to express what they feel. Why? Well, because when you're a man, you had to suppress your feelings when your fellow soldier just got his head blown off next to you because you had to get back and report it, and you had to push it down to survive and focus because that's your job as a man. So you push the stuff down. You push it down, whereas women are free to speak it. But let me finish the four prompts. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. (laughs) No, no, I keep interrupting myself. It's ADD mixed with Alzheimer's. Um, So the first prompt is, uh, um, so hopefully they'll say, okay, Dad, okay, Mom. And the first thing, and again, you're just doing an activity. Uh, You're not looking them yet in the eye. And you say, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life yourself? Do we give them a rating, zero to 10? Well, no. What they usually say, if you're lucky, is, you know, and you say, level with me. Okay, pretty awful. Surgical empathy, pretty awful or real awful? Okay, okay, real awful. Then you get them to talk a little bit about it. You know, tell me about that. Second thing, when you feel that way, how alone do you feel? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay, okay, all alone. Third prompt. Take me to the last time you felt that. What? What? A WTF? What? Yeah, yeah. Was it was it two thirty in the morning? We heard you sort of you know just stomping around your room and you know when was the last time you felt that way? 
And there's something magical that happens is that when another person, doesn't have to be your child, it can be your spouse, but when they can describe something so clearly that you see it with your eyes, they re-experience the feelings and they're not alone. This really works. I remember you shared this at the anti-bullying event that Denise Klein put up, excuse me, and I immediately reiterated this to my clients in a group. And one of the moms reiterated it, did the exercise with her kid, and it worked. And it really works. And I, so I just want all the listeners to know that this is something that practically in the moment, it works really well. Yeah, and so to, uh, so to finish this example, uh, yeah, was it 2.30 in the morning? Yeah, we heard you stomping around in your room. Yeah, what was going on? I couldn't sleep. Well, that was clear. What was going on? Well, I had a big test and I couldn't sleep. So what'd you do next? I feel like kicking the wall, punching the wall, punching myself. Wow. And you, and you show, you, you, you register it. Wow. Oh, that's awful. What happened next? Well, I started looking around for your sleeping pills and you hid them very well. I couldn't find them. Then I looked for some cough medicine. Couldn't find that either. Then what happened? I thought I was going out of my mind and then the sun rose. I felt okay. The fourth prompt, and if you're fortunate, you may have earned the right to eye contact. And you say, look at me. What? Look at me. I have a favor to ask you. The next time you feel that, or you're even heading down that road, do whatever it takes to get your mom or my undivided attention. Because we got tons of things in our minds, but there's nothing more important to either of us than helping you feel less alone when you feel that awful. And by the way, it's not a burden. You're not a burden to us. That is so you know, powerful. You know, uh, and, and, and to be honest, we've never been disappointed in you. We've been disappointed for you. Why is for such an important word to use there? Well, because a lot of times children, if they feel like they're frustrating their parents, oh, my parents are frustrated, or, oh, they're disappointed in me, oh, I'm not working hard. Uh, and a lot of times when kids feel you're disappointed in them, that begins to cause them to feel, see, I'm a burden. But when you flip it to say, we're not disappointed in you, and that's because you're our kid, and we love you. We're disappointed for you because we know you're in pain and we know you do certain things to get out of the pain, which may feel better for a nanosecond, but it's just gonna make your life worse. Wow, so if you're listening to this, please replay that five times. I, I say go practice it in the mirror because it's that effective and that powerful. And I love how you, you're so specific with the words and the words not to say and the words, like the little tiny words, just how for is so, is going to land so much differently, especially for people that feel like they're a burden so that they're not feeling singled out and feeling like they're bad for their parents having this conversation with them. I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah I, I, I share an insight. I, uh, not an insight, but so, you know, when I was in practice and, and by the way, I, uh, I'm not licensed anymore. I'm retired. So I, I, and one of the toughest things is people say, you could help my kid. 
you can reach my kid. And uh, uh, I'm trying to get the word out, teaching whatever I know to wherever I can, parents, counselors, you know, wherever I can, because, you know, my approach is not evidence-based. It's empathically informed. The way I look at the world is totally empathically informed. And and I will tell you, if you can learn to do that, it's amazing how you will connect with the world and people just open up to you because you're not trying to do them. When you're empathically connecting with someone, is that the same thing as attuning with someone? Yeah, I, I, I th- yeah, they're... Uh, It is. I'm pausing because uh, I think the other person, you can attune with someone and you can be empathically informed. It doesn't necessarily mean that they feel cared about. So your intention has to be like my intention, uh, because someone I think saved my life in medical school, because uh, they wanted to kick me out the second time I dropped out, because you know, I, I was, and if I was a business, I, I would have kicked me out too. But the, uh, uh, and I met with the dean of the school who cared about money, and I don't even remember that, but the dean of students, who cares about students, calls me and said, I got a letter from the dean, you better come in here. And I go in there, and I was at a low point. This is the second time I'm dropping out, non-consecutively. And he said, uh, read this letter. And the letter said, from the main guy who's about money. I met with Mr. Goulston. We talked about other careers. I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. So I was still passing. They couldn't flunk me up. And I said, what does this mean? And the dean of students, he, he said, you've been kicked out. And then he hit me with the trifecta of hope, which I just paid forward for 35 years to my patients. And here's the trifecta of hope. So I'm at a low point. He said, you've been kicked out. And when he said that, I got real vulnerable like I did with my dad. I just went, it was like a gunshot wound. I know what that feels like. I had a perforated organ. I almost died. And And I think the raw vulnerability got to him. And he said, um, you didn't mess up, you're passing everything, but you are messed up. But if you got unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. And I started to cry with compassion. You know, what is he, what is, what is he doing? And here's the trifecta of hope. The first one is unconditional love. He said, um, but even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Because you have some goodness in you that we don't really grade. We should. You have goodness in you, and you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. So that was the first leg, unconditional love. And then he says, and you're not going to know how much the world needs your goodness until you're 35. So he saw a future for me. That was the second leg. And the third and most important leg is he said, you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. If he had said, call me, if I can help you, I probably wouldn't have called him. I'd probably go back to my apartment. I probably wouldn't be here. 
but he said, you're going to let me help you. And he stood up to the, he was just a PhD. He stood up to the whole medical school and he said, we're giving this one a second chance. So the trifecta of unconditional love, seeing a future for them, and, and going to bat for them when they can't. But what do you say to the parent that's, that says, why well, I, I unconditionally love my kids. I get them everything that they need. I'm always there for them. Right, and maybe we don't say it to them every day, but I do what, everything to the best of my abilities. Yeah. So I let you vent. I'd say, uh, uh, can I tell you what you're pissed off about right now? Because it's because it's overflowing your voice. Can I take a shot at that? Yeah. Uh, unless way down deep, you don't give a shit. You know your kid is hurting way down deep. And you are powerless and helpless to help them. And you don't do powerless or helpless very well. You hate to be powerless and helpless. And you're raising your voice because your kid scares you. Because you think, oh, it'll never happen to my kid. But you just found out that someone in the high school did it. Well, if it was their kid, it could be your kid. And so do me a favor. Level with me. You're scared. I'm not scared. I don't know who the hell you think you are. I mean, and this is the type of men that are that we're dealing with here. These dads that don't want to admit that they feel powerless or helpless and they're completely defended. So so, uh, so, so they do that? You can play it out. I could say, I'd say, uh, who'd you learn that from? What? Well, my dad, but he was a good dad. Uh, he was strong. He was strong. Right. Yeah, he was strong. And, and, and when you got scared, when he get, when he got strong, he just said, "Man up to you." Man up. And you know, I want to know what happened. That being scared didn't go away. That's why you drink too much, you eat too much, you have compulsive shit that you do, because every time you get pissed off, you got to make it go away. But underneath, you're being pissed off. You're really scared. You're scared you're going to lose get, get lose that job. You know, uh, you know, Mr. Macho Man, you're scared that, you know, your wife is going to be finally fed up with you and say, okay, that's it. Let's get a divorce. And you're scared because you don't know how to deal with any of those situations. So don't bullshit me because if you lose your kid, your fucking life is over. Lose your kid, lose your wife, lose your husband, lose your cousin. I mean, so to pivot a little bit here, and my God, you're so like, <laughs> I would not want to be... A man who is unwilling to look at his shit in a session with you. That's who I don't want to be. Yes, very powerful. You're very brave in being able to do that. I I, I want to ask you, we have celebrities that are in the media for committing suicide. And they present to the world that they are the happiest people. And I have had friends of mine who have presented as the happiest people and then they end their life they walk into a room they say i'm fine i'm good i'm happy and they're not honest well they're they're honest here's why they're honest and you'll see that this happens often i'm happy because 
I'm going to get out of this pain soon. I'm not going to tell you. Oh, what, you know, the helplessness that you're talking about right now, I feel it. How are we supposed to, what can we, what are the signs that we can look for if, if they're presenting with a smile, if they're maintaining eye contact with you and they're doing all the right things that you would never assume that they're suicidal, they're struggling with suicidal ideations. How are you supposed to, like, how are you supposed to know? Well, you need to know something about, you know, what their life has been. And so, uh, and so if they been through trauma, if they've been through things, uh, and, uh, and they're presenting that way, uh, they're, uh, they're covering it up. Now, part of the reason they're covering it up is because they don't trust anyone in the world. Because if I really let you know, you'll get panicky. You'll call 911. Uh, and I don't want to go into the hospital. You ask, you know, uh, you, uh, you did a bait and switch. You invited me to tell you what I'm thinking about. And then when I tell you, I scare the shit out of you. So it's much easier to just say, I'm fine. How's your day going? Fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. The acronym for fine, I like to say. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so. So, so here, here's some of the things you can do with people uh, who you think are uh, not being genuine with you. So they say that. And, uh, and you tilt your head and you got to practice the tone and you say, really? Yeah, I'm totally fine. Why do you ask? Are you sure about that? So yeah. you got to get to the bottom. That's what you're saying. I'm trying to role play with you. So that, yeah, I'm like role playing because I, I want people to have practical tools that they can use. And those are the things that people often say, especially men. Yeah, I'm fine, bro. Why are you asking? Or I find that people don't want to ask people real questions because they think it's none of their business. They don't want mm -hmm. to get too real. They don't want to get too personal. So I feel like this is a cultural problem because I feel like we're recovering from this old way of communicating and connecting, which is like, hey, Barbara, how are the kids? It's very surface. So superficial. How's yes. the barbecue? Good. I got some good steaks. Sorry, I didn't say steaks, but <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so superficial and surfacey. Mm. So how do we remove that? Um, remember what I said, when you do the four prompts, you do it when you're doing an exercise. Yes. Mm. So if you're there, you know, we're in LA, wherever you go, you see women going for walks in the morning, you know, all over the place. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's like ants in this colony. Oh, there's two going for a walk. They're, I wonder what they're talking about. You know, whereas the guys are riding their bikes and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but I think when you're doing an activity, um, you know, so so you can show the vulnerability, but it's diluted by the activity. Uh, and what you can see, and you can, uh, and, and there's also a principle that I suggest. Uh, if you bare your neck, it helps other people to bear their neck, but you don't want to be a complainer or whatever. Uh, so you, you might say when you're talking to someone, um, do you ever put on a happy face? when you're not what yeah I find myself doing that a lot I uh and uh it's getting worse um I remember one of my oh, patients years ago I remember one of my patients years ago said I think I wrote this up 
not an official diagnosis. You can't get insurance to pay for it. Uh, she said, I have the Cheshire Cat Syndrome. I said, what's that? She said, remember the Cheshire Cat? You see the smile and the cat disappears in the tree from Alice in Wonderland? She said, I'm smiling more and I'm disappearing more and I'm having trouble becoming visible again. So all I do is smile. Right. Another very important question that I had, which is kind of, it's, I'm very interested to know the answer to that one. So there are kids who would actually tell other people, and it's kids that I worked with a lot in the foster system, that would use the suicide language in a manipulating way. So as a person in part of the system, psychologists, therapists, lawyers, how do people deal with children like that? How can we help them instead of them being able to use it against us, right? So um, we're all running in circles around them because we're, we don't know, is this really what they feel or is it because they don't want to be in this house anymore or you know because what happens is they say oh no i'm 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 gonna do something bad to myself if i don't leave this for example foster home or um this place i don't want to be with my parents anymore because i'm gonna do this well look it's a great question you know um you know i think one of the things you can say or do is um I don't know how serious you are, uh, but because you said that, uh, we got to get it checked out. Mm. And so a lot of times, if they're venting, they don't want to go through the hassle. What does that mean? Uh, we're going to go in urgent care or an emergency room. And a lot of them want that. Yeah, yeah. They want to go to the emergency yeah. room. Yeah. Stay away from, they get away from the environment they were in. So they would use it multiple times. And you get to the point where, oh my gosh, we're on eggshells because we don't want to, we want to listen to them. We want to give them all the attention and make sure it doesn't happen, of course. But then when, how do you stop that? And even teenagers, I think, uh, with parents today, we're so sensitive. We're so worried. We don't want that to happen to our child. Well, well, well something... Um, one of my favorite books is by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. It's called What Happened to You? So Bruce Perry is one of the main practitioners of trauma-informed therapy. And the title of the book, What Happened to You, is basically saying that no matter how someone acts on the surface, something happened to them recently or a long time ago. Right. And if you can actually believe that, that however you're acting is a product of something that happened to you, their whole approach is uh, uh, what happened to you, that this is, this is what you're saying, this is what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Um, you didn't feel this out of the blue. You know? And so, so the whole idea of trauma-informed therapy is, is that you believe however they're acting um, now, again, you might say, well, you know, they're crying for attention or whatever. But I think if in your mind, you can, your approach is, 
let them vent and say, what happened to you that now you you know you want to kill yourself or mm-hmm. take me away from this and so so you're not you try not to get caught up in being transactional right you try to dig underneath it what happened to you uh, that's causing you to do this you, you can do this with a if you're in a, a dispute with your partner you know and they're yelling at you or they're getting sullen or they're stonewalling you but the point is you want to calm yourself down and not be reactive in your tone and say, hey, uh, uh, what happened to you that you're shutting me out? Well, nothing happened to me. Don't flip it on me. Yeah, why are you asking? All of a sudden you care? It looks like you just told me what happened to you. Mm. If all of a sudden I just care... Uh, there's been lots of times when you felt I didn't give a shit about you. And you sucked it in, and that's probably true. It's so good. As the parent, you have to be willing to face your stuff, though. Face mm-hmm. your shame, not get sucked and drowned by the shame, but face where could I have done better? Where could I have focused more of my attention on my kids? And, and, and not drown in it but learn from it. And I, I think what you're talking to, about right now too is you have to read in between the lines. Like an ounce of behavior speaks a thousand words. What are they doing in their behavior and not saying with their words? Mm-hmm. I, and I, I, I think, and you talk a lot about this in the documentaries, teenagers are constantly described as, oh, they're just moody. They're just being teenagers. What does that even mean? You know, I started drinking when I was 13 and a half. Not one person in my high school said, and they accused, well, I was snorting Adderall at soccer games by the time I was 15 years old. I went to the vice principal, I went to the vice principal, the principal's office because I got in trouble because they thought I was snorting cocaine. I wasn't. I was snorting ADHD medication. Nothing happened after that. Not one teacher asked me, are you okay? Can I spend a little bit more time with you? I find that people are afraid to ask the tough questions. It's like they don't want the responsibility of whatever the kid says. Well, well I think there's a uh, uh, there's an epidemic of what I call empathophobia. People are phobic of being empathic. The reason being Love that. is if someone opens up to you, you have to drop everything. You have to do something. Right. And the point is, so many people are so busy, they don't want to drop anything. Exactly. And, and then what happens is they don't drop anything, and then that person <laughs> falls through the cracks. And, and, and the point is, these are difficult things. You know, I, 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 it isn't easy. All I'm saying, uh, it's interesting, there's a friend of mine, uh, uh, and we're talking about his doing a TED Talk, called suicide is not an option because uh, he's bipolar 2 and bipolar 2 is different from bipolar 1 is your delusional psychotic when you're manic and then you're depressed bipolar 2 people are more suicidal because a lot of the, the great people who have created things you know maybe musk maybe jobs were possibly bipolar 2 and what happens is when you're grandiose and you're very creative, when you go to the other side, the humiliation 
you can't stand. Whereas bipolar one, you're not that humiliated because you didn't accomplish that much anyway. Mm. And so this person was like king of the world. And, uh, but when he flipped to the other side and, uh, and he went to a friend when he was feeling suicidal, but he didn't say it was suicidal. He said, uh, uh, how'd you get over your dad killing himself? And the guy looked at him and said, you never get over it. I think about it every day. And at that point, he loved his young children, and he said, I kill myself, I'm going to traumatize them for a lifetime. Suicide is not an option. So he took it off the table. But, you know, when he's dealing with the depression, it's, 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 it's hell. Right. Would you say that the big picture reason why this became such a problem is... And social media, of course, I watched the, the documentary, social media is creating so many issues for kids and teenagers. But, you know, looking at the example of Kevin Hines, who I'm sure you've heard about. Yeah, uh, we went a documentary together. I inter- oh. I, no, we had another documentary called Stay Alive, where I interviewed him. And that's on Amazon Prime. Right. And we talk, the whole thing's about talking about him and jumping off the bridge. and all Right. That. So what I was trying to say about him is he mentioned that he attempted to commit suicide. He jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said there was such a long time before he came that day to that bridge, right? And he was on a bus literally saying out loud, I think I'm going to kill myself or whatever he specifically was saying. But to that point, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. I'm not happy. And he said, I just wanted someone to say something to me. 100%. Someone. And no one so said afraid. anything. People are so afraid. I'm amazed. I'm a very open crier. I have a lot of funny stories around crying in grocery stores, crying in the car. But a lot of the times, I, I would say one time I cried in public and someone came up to me and said, do you need something? I was at Starbucks and crying in the car and I was in the middle of a therapy session. A guy knocked on my door and I was like, you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm just grieving. I'm in a therapy session right now. He's the only one. It's like you said, people are literally have a phobia of empathy, of connecting, of, oh, something's wrong. I don't want to, I don't want to bother. Well, this I person. don't want to get involved because, uh, because, you know, if someone says to you, if you really want to know, you know, I'm thinking of killing myself. Well, if you really want to know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the point is, if you're a human being, you have to stop whatever you're doing. Mm, so simple. Yeah, but, but most people do not want to stop what they're doing. So stop what you're doing right now. And if we're in line at a grocery store, if I'm at home with my kid, what is the most important question I could ask someone to show them that I care about them. Um, it's it's the intention more than the words. Uh, so if you go up to someone and you say, "Are you okay?" So it's the intention. What? Uh, and it's interesting because uh, you know I, I I do executive coaching, but but and what my clients say is. I can't hide from you. And I said, is that good or bad? And they say, it's weird, <laughs> but it's not bad. Uh, because I hide from everyone. I hide from myself. And part of it is, 
And, and yeah, yeah, sure, you know, I had decades doing this. But, you know, when you're with someone, uh, almost there's, there's something bugging almost everyone. And so when I'd be, you know, coaching some big CEO, I'll say, you know, uh, something's eating away at you. And it's not just distracting you, it's distracting me. Mm. So why don't we put the stuff we're talking about aside, we'll address it, what's eating away at you? And here's the power of caring. And so there's an anecdote in one of my books where uh, I'm there and I'm with some big CEO and, uh, and I can be pretty you know, bold. Uh, and you know he's, the last thing he wants to be is with me. It's the New Yorker in you. There you go. Uh, my, it's, it's my uh, relatives came from New York. <laughs> uh, they, they owned an ice cream parlor called Jan's. I remember that. Which they lost in a poker game. Yeah. Oh my uh, gosh. Uh, I don't know what cards they were playing. But, uh, but I said to the CEO, I said, hey. He looks, puts his glasses down. What? How much time you got for me? He said, what? I said, look at your schedule. Come on. <laughs> 20 minutes. And I knew in 30 seconds he was going to throw me out. I said, we're into three minutes. And what we're about to talk about is worth your undivided attention, but you can't give it to me because there's something else in your mind much more important than this. So here's the deal. Let's cancel the meeting right now. You get 17 minutes. Go take care of whatever's on your mind and we'll schedule this or you can tell your assistant to never let me in the building again but take care of what's on your mind. Because mm. I could tell he was distracted, and this big guy starts to tear up. And I said to myself, oh, stop making them cry in the corporate world already. And he says, you, uh, I'm private, and you know something that people 20 yards from here don't know. Uh, my wife's having a biopsy, and it doesn't look good. Mm. And I said, go be with her. That's much more important. You shouldn't be here. And then he looked at me, and he, he was like a big St. Bernard coming in from the rain. He goes, and he said, uh, uh, I'm not as tough as my wife, but I'm pretty tough. Mm. And you've got my full attention, and you got your 20 minutes. Wow. Uh, it seems to me that you, just the moment you show somebody that you see them, and you show them you care, they, they show you the cards, but right? Back to it. poker. I'm really sad that we have to wrap this interview up because it's such an important interview. I'm 100% going to have you back. Um, really quickly, I just wanted to share with the audience what you're doing right now. You started your own radio show, correct? Yeah, so uh, I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call. Yes. Um, you were on it, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but we started a new show on UK Health Radio, ukhealthradio.com. And it's called Hurt Less, Live More. Mm. Most of the audience is women 24 to 45. And what we have is people that just are so real and inspiring that it hurts. In our recent show, and I'll just end with this, uh, we had a woman that I'm going to try and make a superstar named Pauline Victoria. She was born without arms or legs. And she tells the story of her father having to tell her mother what she was when she was born because the mother was out born. and unconscious wow. and said, we have a child. And everybody said, put her in an institution. And her parents, you know, weren't wealthy or anything like that. And they said, no, we're going to love her and raise her to not feel sorry for herself. 
She's got a kid, four stepchildren. She's got, and she's unbelievable. Wow. I have a last question yeah. before we go. Doctor, what made you smile today? Oh, I love that. That I get to give each of you a bracelet. Yay! Yay. Yay. What made you smile today? And here you go. That, love that. That was our movement. I, I, by the way, I did that in Moscow. Thank you. They said, don't do anything with these thousand Russians. And I said, it's all I do. And I said, before I start, go up to someone you don't know and ask them what made you smile today. And they stare at me like deers in a headlight. I said, I'm not starting. Go, go, go. And they start doing it. And the I answer is nothing. I, I couldn't shut them up. I mean, they started talking, they're laughing. I said, come on, sit down, I got to do a presentation. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Well, there's so much more I want to ask, so I'll have to do it next time. Thank you so much for Thank you this so interview. Much. You've helped me, you've helped children, you've helped teenagers, you've helped parents with this interview. So I cannot wait for people to just hear your words and thank you for the documentaries that you're doing with Jason. They're, I'm, I'm very hopeful that they get into those 500 school systems. Uh, and he's someone that I'm going to be having on the show oh, shortly great. as well. Yeah. So thank you to everyone who's listened to this episode. If you haven't already, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Please leave us a rating. Please share your feedback. We love engaging with all of you. Thank you for all of your lovely words on social media. It means a lot to us. We hope to get back to you as soon as we can. And stay tuned for an all-new episode next week. Thanks, Mark. Thank, Thank you. you. And thanks, Anna, for joining me today. Thank you, Anna. <laughs>